Hey there, this is Amanda, host of Late Bloom and Love, with a quick pre-interview to a favorite episode of mine from last season. It's part two of my conversation with sex educator and best-selling author, Emily Nagoski. Have a listen if you missed this episode the first time around, or if you need a little inspiration. And I'll be back with a new episode of the podcast soon. Hi, and welcome back to Late Bloomin' Love, the podcast about finding love when it's about bloomin' time. I'm your host, Amanda Klang. And by now, you probably know that each episode, I talk with a guest about love and relationships, because I'm single and seeking one too. And I hope any listeners in my situation feel encouraged by what they hear. You probably also know that my wise and wonderful friend, Shelly Morgan, joins me after each interview to share her often very different take on what we've heard. So I want to get right down to today's episode. It's part two of an interview I did early in the pandemic with a hero of mine, sex educator and New York Times bestselling author, Emily Nagoski. She wrote, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life which was re-released with a new edition a year ago in the spring of 2021. In part one of our conversation, Nagoski explained that everything she'd learned about sex growing up was wrong, and that her book is part of a larger project to dismantle sex-negative, oppressive messages around sexuality, and particularly those messages affecting women's experiences of their bodies, their sexuality, and their sense of self-worth. In part two, Nagoski and I continue the conversation, and we pick things up with a chat about the dual control mechanism in the human brain that regulates sexual response. She calls this mechanism our sexual personality and explains that it includes two parts. One, an accelerator which responds to things that turn us on, and two, a brake which responds to things that turn us off. People can have a high sensitivity accelerator or a low sensitivity accelerator, same for their break. Each person is different and, like introversion and extroversion, we're born inclined one way or the other. I asked a question about people with low sensitivity accelerators because that's how my brain works. And Emily Nagoski starts off, of course, with a reference to the scientific research about it. That conversation is up next. There have been a few studies on this and it looks like about the same proportion of people have a sensitive accelerator as have a sensitive brake and about the same proportion have an insensitive accelerator as have an insensitive brake. So it's a small number in each of those groups. So if you are a low sensitivity accelerator person, know that you are going to need more time in order to uh, like preheat the oven. Yes, okay. Uh, You need to create a context that allows your brain to interpret a wide range of stimuli as being related to sex. Uh, People vary enormously in what this is, but the sort of baseline starting point for creating a context that allows your brain to interpret sensation as sex related, it should be safe. Uh, It should be full of affection, Mm. low stress, Mm -hmm. And not least, explicitly erotic. Uh 
So all those romantic cues for chapter three is where you find like the list of what all these cues are. Uh, romantic cues, that's not just like being high maintenance, that's revving the engine. That is like letting the accelerator know a sex related situation is gonna come up sometime later in the day. I just wanna let you know that that's happening so that your accelerator can start going, oh, hmm a sex related something. <laughs> and then uh, when you get home from work, uh, that say text is followed up by your partner having made the dinner and cleaned the kitchen after work. Right. <laughs> uh, and like fully taking care of everything. And then when the actual body contact starts, it lasts a long time. There's a whole bunch of foreplay. There is no pressure or demand that anything escalate to anything at all. When you have a lower sensitivity accelerator, you need more time. And a vibrator is a great idea. Vibrators mm -hmm. provide mechanical stimulation. It's more intense direct genital stimulation than almost anything that you can get from organic stimulation. It will only be effective for a low sensitivity accelerator person if the vibration happens when you are already turned on. You can't just go from nothing to vibrator and have it turn into a huge sexual pleasure. You can go from warmed up to vibrator and have it be great. Oh, excellent tip. Thank you, Emily. That's great. You mentioned in the last uh, um, moment something really key in everything that you're talking about in the book, context. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in a, when we were talking about stress, that's one aspect of our context and it sort of relates to our physiology. But of course, there's the context of, of our minds too, what we think about and un often unconsciously. And you sum it up really nicely by talking about the three messages that most mm -hmm. uh, women grow up with in, in this culture. And I wondered if you could just explain what you mean by those three messages. Oh, sure. So I call them the moral message, the media message, and the medical message, because who doesn't love alliteration? <laughs> exactly. So the moral message is the oldest one. It has changed surprisingly little over the last 700 years. And that basically is that if you are a woman, um, you're not supposed to want sex. And if you do, you're a slut and a whore. Your sexuality will can only make you unlovable. Mm -hmm. uh, some bad women may choose to replace their lovability with a sexual desirability, but that will never make them lovable. Right. <laughs> uh, so, there, so if you want sex, there's something wrong with you. You should only have sex uh, when your inevitably male partner wants to have it. And if you deny sex to that male partner, then uh, you're evil. Mm -hmm. So basically you're doing it wrong uh, because sex is inherently evil. Great moral message, <laughs> and it varies in the details of it. And of course, none of us fully buys into this message, but it was there in the culture right. that we grew up in, right. whether it was taught to us explicitly or not, whether it was enforced explicitly or not, it was there teaching us. The medical message is more about like health and functioning. So uh, sex is dangerous because it's a source of disease and unwanted pregnancy. Uh, and so if you have sex, you could get sick. 
And so you need to protect yourself and not have sex until you're in a protected, safe situation. And when you do have sex, there's a specific order you're supposed to do things, a specific order your body's supposed to have things happen in, culminating with simultaneous orgasm during penile vaginal intercourse. And that is normal sex. And desire comes before arousal or pleasure. And if it doesn't happen in that order, then you're medically diseased and you need to be medically treated <laughs> medically. Mm. A disease, a problem. Um, do you suppose being taught that you have a disease, uh, does, does that hit the accelerator? No, that would hit the brake. <laughs> yeah, so a great way to disrupt women's sexual functioning is to convince them that they have a disease and they need a drug or a surgery. Right. Or treatment of right. some kind. Or Viagra for ladies. Right, which that's a, that's a whole thing. Um, so the third message is the media message. This is the most recent. It emerged at the same time as mass media. I'm thinking like women's magazines in particular as they changed mm -hmm. with the era of television. Um, this is the, you know, here's how you're supposed to be performing sexually. You're supposed to be having all 48 of these different kinds of orgasms. You're supposed to be really interested in threesomes and masturbation. And you're supposed to perform sexual pleasure because men really love it when women act like they like sex um and also your body is too big and too small <laughs> you're um smiling too much but also too little you're doing it wrong no that's wrong too do it differently forever right. it keeps us chasing an aspirational sexual ideal that is deliberately unattainable because if it were attainable we might dare to be satisfied with who we are as people and then we would stop buying things because only people who feel like shit buy more shit. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Um, I wanted to ask, so you've just been explaining um, uh, these different messages, the medical message, moral message, and the media message that create a kind of unconscious context or conscious mm -hmm. to some degree that have a huge impact for, for lots of women on how they feel about themselves and often we feel super negative and we're super self-critical and that has yeah. it makes it really hard to have a good relationship with ourselves or with a sexual partner and yeah and if you're feeling critical of your body right during sex like does does, does no. that hit the XL? that hits the brakes i think yeah. we all know about that body image follows stress in yeah. terms of most common things that chronically hit the brakes Right. You have And I'm some... afraid that people are going to hear that and be like, well, I'm doomed. No, they're not, though, because you have some excellent suggestions of really, really yeah, doable things. Strategies for addressing these things. I know at this point, hundreds of people who have gone through the process over a few weeks or months, sometimes years, if you have like a big, long history of trauma, abuse, and neglect, like it's a project excavating yeah. this stuff yeah. from your garden, but it happens every day. Right. That's amazing. And what are some of the, the techniques that um, you, you recommend for maybe not, not people who are working with trauma right off, because of course that's more complex, but just say like negative body image that just we pick up, like you were saying, from magazines, from the popular culture. What are some places that you recommend people starting or, or that you talk about because there is research that this can be helpful? Yes. So one of the exercises I always recommend, uh, it's called a cognitive dissonance exercises because it, uh, it activates dissonance in your brain. What you do is you stand in front of a mirror naked. Mm-hmm. And you write down everything you see that you like. Uh -huh. 
And the first thing that happens when you try this is your brain is just going to be bombarded with all the things that you have been taught are wrong with your body, the things you've been taught. If you don't criticize these things, then you're selfish or a bitch or there's something wrong with you. Um, That's fine. You're just going to set those aside because all of us have been exposed to what my sister calls the bikini industrial complex. Yes. It lives in our brain. So we're just going to set that aside right now. And we're going to look for things we like. If it's the color of your eyes, write that down. If it is the shape of your eyebrows, write that down. If it's the bow over your lips, your philtrum, write that down. If it's your kneecaps, you write that down. If it is your spirit, because you can see that in your posture, write that down. Right. Do it again the next day. Keep doing it again the next day and the next day. And gradually you will build up a resistance to the nonsensical cultural messages that tell you your body is anything other than the beautiful miracle that it is. I'm working toward a world where we all recognize that a beautiful body is just any body. A body? That's a beautiful body. She is beautiful and you are beautiful and I am beautiful. And all those people, like I don't know what their genders are, but their bodies are beautiful because they're their bodies. Yes. You've shared a little bit in some of your your talks and stuff that that sometimes can, is something that you work on too. And I'm just wondering where are you at in the the self-love kind of homework department? So I'm going through what everybody goes through. I was raised in the same sort of like thin ideal culture that everybody was raised in Uh, and I worked hard to embrace my body in the shape that it was and I was doing really well and then I turned 40 Mm -hmm. and everything changed in my body Mm -hmm. and I have to like sort of start over and begin loving this body as it is Mm -hmm. and continue treating it with as much like love and nurturance and prioritizing its health and well-being without succumbing to like torturing myself to try to force it to conform to uh an ideal that never applied to me uh so uh and like i'm doing pretty well good good right now it helps that uh through quarantine i don't i don't have to go stand in front of big audiences that often so the only people whose opinions I experience of my body are my own and my husband's basically. And he is very non-judgmental. <laughs> He's on board already. <laughs> yes. And it does help a lot that yeah. uh, my person I have sex with, like when he sees my body, he does not see, well, she doesn't conform with a culturally constructed aspirational beauty ideal. And therefore, right. I don't know. She's right. like, he, his response is, Emily's body. <laughs> yes, that is the the response. That is the the response we want. Yeah, and yeah. really, that's the only acceptable response. Exactly. You, like it takes so much vulnerability. It takes mm-hmm. so much to show up with your bare body to let somebody see parts yeah. of your body almost no one will ever see. Yeah. Touch parts of your body almost yeah. no one will ever touch. Even put parts of themselves inside you. <laughs> Or you put parts of yourself in, like, yeah, there's so much vulnerability. And if you show up and their response is anything short of, yay, and wow, that's, Mm. is that, is that going to hit the accelerator? That is not going to hit the accelerator, Emily. So it matters that our partners are vocal in their support and love for our bodies exactly as they are right now. There's no amount of looking in a mirror and being like, I am the new hotness. What I see here excites me. And then you go downstairs and someone who doesn't have your best interest at heart says, but you're going to lose the weight, right? 
Hmm. Oh, God. No, no, no. Speaking from personal that. experience on that one. Oh, my goodness. All right. It was a while ago. Don't worry. <laughs> and you married the right person, so good. Yes. Good. I wanted to ask, this is actually, I was talking to friends and asking what they would like to ask, and a number of people asked this question. You address it to some degree. Well, no, quite a bit. Um, like, long-term relationships. So you might be feeling wonderful about yourself, who knows, and you might be dealing with your stressors in your life really well. You've been with the same partner partner for a long time and the intensity of the early part of your your relationship and your sexual relationship has subsided what do you do you have something you talk about uh in your book about plot and then your very simple um suggestion for that stage of a relationship is add more plot and i wanted you just could you explain that i love that yeah so uh, the exciting sex at the beginning of a relationship happens because the attachment mechanism, the sort of like biology of love in our brain is fueling the fire of sexual arousal, pleasure, and desire. And once you get into a stable, secure relationship, that fire isn't burning so hot, like you have been welded together and the temperature doesn't need to be up so high. And so it does take more of a deliberate effort to create a context that allows desire and pleasure to emerge. And so you switch strategies. Instead of relying on the hot and heavy fallen in love chemistry, you collaborate in a shared story. Instead of just being like, well, okay, so here we are in our happily ever after. Now our life isn't about like erotic exploration. It's about getting the kids to soccer. Right. At a particular time. And I need to get enough sleep in order to be able to go to work tomorrow and all just life. Right. And that's fine. Again, long term relationship, sexual connection is not predicted by frequency of sex or adventure. It is predicted by uh, couples who have a strong friendship mm. at the foundation of their relationships. You have to really like like each other. Right. And trust each other. Yes. And people who prioritize sex. And the first thing I want to say about that is it is totally normal for there to be times in your life when sex is not a priority, when it drops off the radar. When you first bring mm. a newborn baby into your life, sex is going to go away. Right. You're going to be exhausted and you're going to feel strange about your bodies. And that's normal. Like nobody's going to like judge that like, I don't know, you should be you should be interested in having sex four times a week. There's something wrong with you if you're not interested in that. Right. We all know that there are phases in our life that sexual desire ebbs, and that's not a predictor of sexual problems. The difficulty is when um, we cannot find our way back to each other. Mm. And I find that the most sort of neglected problem that stands between partners when they're trying to find their way back to each other is all the feelings, the difficult feelings that have accumulated between them during their disconnect. Right. Uh, so the lower desire partner might be feeling frustrated and ashamed and guilty, but also pressured. Mm-hmm. Um, and the higher desire partner might be feeling rejected, uh, but also worried that maybe like they want sex too much and mm-hmm. they the rejection makes them want to ask more and more. And then eventually they don't want to ask at all. And they feel frustrated and rejected. And uh, if, uh, if they're one of the partners here, what on the day they were born, people went, it's a boy. One of the things that person got taught starting the day they're born is that their value on earth can be measured by their ability to put their penis inside a vagina. Hmm. So when, if, if you're that person married to someone with a vagina, (laughs) 
And yes. that person is like, no, no, I don't want your penis in my vagina tonight. It is not just rejecting penis and vagina. It is a measure of personhood and worth. It's a rejection of the whole self. It mm. feels like these are myths we are taught. We didn't get to choose them, but there they fucking are in our gardens. Sorry mm. about the swearing. No, it's warranted in this case. <laughs> there they are. And so part of the work that has to happen in finding our way back to each other is this garden maintenance of recognizing, oh, when you said no to the sex, you were just literally just tired, but my body responded as if you were saying that my sexuality is not acceptable to you. Oh, right. And yeah. probably if your partner loves you and you had that experience, they'll move towards you with warmth and compassion. Like all I meant was that I was tired and like, let's hug and like, you can be sad with me and I can be present while you're sad. So in the same way uh, that dealing with the stress is different from dealing with the problem that caused the stress, like dealing with the stress of a commute is separate from the process of actually getting through your commute. Yeah. The process of dealing with uh, moving, with re-engaging sexually is separate from the process of dealing with all the feelings both people have about the separation. Right, right. So, so. moving back toward each, like the plan part of it is really easy. You just like, you know, Saturday at three o'clock, you me in the red underwear. <laughs> or uh, for the first four weeks when we do this, we're just going to roll around and whatever threshold you decide is appropriate because we want to not have too much pressure or expectation. Um, and then, so that's like the easy part is you just plan it and you do it. Mm -hmm. The difficult part is dealing with all of the feelings that you had. Like you need to reconnect emotionally mm -hmm. about all that stuff. And that feels like very difficult work and it does not require anything like the same skill set as is required for just dealing with the sexual reconnection. Right. So that's some emotional skills that you either need to develop or enact, I guess, in communicating right. and stuff. And there's, like so many evidence-based ways to do this. Um, John Gottman's Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, Sue mm -hmm. Johnson's Hold Me Tight, and her whole emotionally focused therapy yes. model is specifically about these like separating the problem from everybody's feelings about the problems. Right, right. Those are both great resources. And in fact, that brings me to the last question I want to ask you today, which is like just considering how much cultural misinformation we are all bombarded with about our sexuality, among, of course, many things. Um, what are some sources of positive and like useful messaging that you see in the culture? And I'm thinking kind of the popular culture too. I mean, in your book, you offer lots of good resources, sort of, you know, um, what, like what you just mentioned, people who are specialists or professionals, but just in terms of like the stuff people might catch on TV or, or a book someone might read for pleasure, or an author someone might like, it, what, are, what are some of the good stuff that you are seeing out there and you might recommend? For popular culture, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. I have uh. very limited contact. <laughs> but like, I don't, I don't have TV. I mostly watch YouTube and Hulu. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but just this year, a new book came out. It's a little on the sciencey side, but it is so good. Mm. It's called Magnificent Sex. Mm. Best title ever. Yes right up there with come as you are yes. <laughs> uh, and it, it it's by peggy kleinplatz and uh dana maynard 
they and their team interviewed dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives. And they wanted to know, first of all, what does that extraordinary sex look like? What does that involve? And uh, how did you get there? (laughs) One of the keys for me is that the average age at which this group had their first experience of extraordinary sex. Yes. 55. Okay. <laughs> so, like, this is a really optimistic book. And yes, yeah. they describe, like, an intensity and glory of sexual connection that can feel out of reach. But the wonderful thing is people are coming from every kind of background you can imagine, every gender identity, every sexual orientation, every location of kink versus vanilla, monogamous, non-monogamous, and what they say as how they got there is they had to, like I did, unlearn everything they thought they knew about sex, gender, bodies, Mm -hmm. pleasure, really trust what their own body was experiencing, and really profoundly, deeply learn to tune in to what was going on with their partner in the moment. That's the real skill. It is not about what you do with your tongue. It is not about right. uh, like the size of the boat or the motion of the ocean. It is about can I attune to my partner in a way where I stay attuned to myself also. And that is a way that people can experience sexuality that is not just sexual pleasure, but actually deepens their understanding of themselves and their partner and their place in the universe. Oh, I love it. What a great note to end on, Emily. So that was Magnificent Sex. Yes. Wonderful. And your book is, of course, Come As You Are. And uh, wait, the longer title is The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And I believe you have a new edition coming out soon, right? Or yes, maybe will already be out, possibly, by oh, the time people great. are hearing this. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, well, One thank you. One of the you. major changes is yes. oh, tell I incorporated me. the magnificent sex research. Oh, wonderful. Okay, good. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today. This was really a pleasure. I'm a great fan and admirer, and I think you are putting such good stuff out into the world that is so needed. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Shelly Morgan, yay, you're back! <laughs> yay! Oh, so happy to see you. So, Emily Nagoski, part two. Part one, it was so interesting to talk to you because your take on it was so different from mine. She was talking <laughs> about the obstacles to, you know, women or she, I mean, she, she cast the net wider, but, you know, she's talking about people, but feeling good enough in themselves to feel worthy of creating a sexual connection with somebody else and your point was like oh my gosh if you're a woman you are just good however you are and I loved that (laughs) in part two of the conversation we got into um how to if you're not feeling great about who you are and what you are and how your body is there's some ways you can work on that yeah so I don't know and in response to this second part what were some of the things that that you twigged onto things that were felt like something interesting to you. I really enjoyed um, when she said a good body is anybody. Mm-hmm. You've got a body. It's oh, a good body. <laughs> it's a good, listen to me. It's a good body. Yeah. Um, and as we age, the body changes. That's true. Um, and sometimes we might begin to think that the change is not so, you know, <clears throat> ah sexy but it is a good body and Mm. to begin to 
to really ensure that we have that in the back of our minds when mm. we meet new people and to know that just as your body is changing, the other person's body That's is changing true. and to even enjoy that change together, mm. um, be it a short term or a long term relationship or just a casual encounter. Mm. You know, um, so I really enjoyed that. A good body is anybody. That ah. for me was fantastic. And just what she said about, you know, taking time to, to look at yourself in the mirror and, and identify things that you love and doing it yeah. again and again. That's and really right. Building that hab- habit, That's which right. I thought that was quite powerful. It is. It is. I've actually practiced that before because I read her book some years ago and I think it it works. But then she makes the point and you already did as well, that you might get to a certain point of being able to look at your naked body and say, hey, I like this and that. And then five years later, it's like, oh, things are mm-hmm. changing. <laughs> Wait a minute. And then you have to redo that process. Yeah. 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 But it is. Yeah. It's it's all like we we have the power. You say this is we you're all about this. We have the power to shape how we think about yes. the things in our yes. life, who we are and how we react to our life. Yeah. 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 She calls it a cognitive dissonance exercise mm-hmm. because I think because it goes against like if you're saying, hey, something positive, it goes against so often our, our first response, which is to yes. be critical. That's so true. Um, what also struck me as I look forward to celebrating my 10-year wedding anniversary yeah, yes. is that the, the ebbs and flow of the sexual desires yeah. um, during a relationship, yeah. a, a long-term relationship. And I thought to myself that as, as we develop our long-term sex lives and relationship, mm-hmm. we, we, and she's so right, you have, there's a certain language that is unspoken between the bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really cultivate that language. And I think to ensure that during the lull period <laughs> mm. that you still maintain that conversation, be it yeah. via the eyes or the hands or the smells yeah. Yeah. Um, or just teasing, because as again, as we get older, um, you have to redefine what sex is mm. and what is sex mm. more than intimacy. Yeah. And it begins, all begins in the mind. Mm. And that's, that's really true. the big orgasm is really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that that was very interesting and kind of looking ahead in my own relationship mm. Mm. and how I can continue to define my sex conversations and sex language and love language um, with my husband is Mm. um, because life happens. Life does happen and life keeps going. Time keeps going. Yes, she does. does. And I thought she made a good distinction also in that same discussion around maintaining sexual connection and desire over the long term in a relationship, that when that connection has been interrupted for whatever Mm -hmm. reason and you Mm -hmm. want to reconnect there are Mm -hmm. two things that have to happen one is to reestablish with your partner the pattern like how do we want to reconnect like it's sort of how many times are we going to try and do this in a week how are we going to get back into the habit that's one thing the other thing is there might be hurt feelings on both sides you know over a long time and you have to heal that and you have to address those as a separate 
thing that needs mm-hmm. to be worked on. And if you don't have the skills together, you go get some help outside. We've talked I about the value of, yep. yeah, of, of yep. therapy and support. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, you speak um, of ways, to, the two ways to, to really get, get back into the hump. Mm. Of <laughs> um, but we all should realize that each couple and each individual will take this information and whatever advice and, or, or, you know, information mm. and work it as best they can within themselves. Because even sometimes just to have the conversation as, okay, we haven't had sex for three months. How do we start? Mm. Um, again, we, you know, it's, it's, it's that language between the couple yeah. that allows that conversation to either be rejected mm. to, you know, somebody not feel guilty. Mm. Um, so again, it, it was communication. Yeah. Always. Communication. Always. And the good news I think is that <laughs> there are more and more uh, models of communication, good communication. Yeah. And yeah. I asked Emily Nagoski in our conversation, if she had any, uh, recommendations in sort of pop pop culture and she didn't have she had some great references to make but those were more um you know specialists and research so i just wanted to mention three things one of which i've already mentioned because it involves you <laughs> so <laughs> this was a um a recent series that came out this spring and it's a six-part documentary on cbc television called the big sex talk and there's six different episodes and and multiple topics addressed and you and your husband Garfield are prominently featured in the first episode where it's a discussion of monogamy non-monogamy and you guys talk about how you approach your relationship very candidly with there's a lot of you to see the affection and respect you guys have it's really really lovely and then there are two other things I wanted to mention one is um is a, a comedy series. So it, it's, it's entertainment. It's called Minx. And mm-hmm. it's set in the 70s. And it's a story of a young feminist who gets her views out there by founding a, a pornographic magazine filled with naked men. And so you would enjoy this. There's tons of penises, left, right, and center. It's penises <laughs> all the time. It. It's actually it's very well done. It's very interesting and, and charming and funny. And then there's a documentary that features um, Emily Nagoski. And it was made, I guess, in 2020. 21 it's called principles of pleasure it's on netflix it's three parts and it it's a nice accompaniment to the big sex talk and yeah. it talks it, it sort of you know interlap overlaps cover some of the same topics but it's just another conversation about sex and relationships and the culture in which we find ourselves and how to feel permission and and to have well-being in the in the process of negotiating all these questions with ourselves and with someone else so. yeah yeah, I like that. Yeah, I'm, so I'm going to just repeat it. The Big Sex Talk, starring Shelly Morgan, mm. Minx, M-I-N-X, and Principles of Pleasure, which is another uh, documentary show. So they're all really good and uh, yes. worth looking up. All right, Shelly. Well, listen, hey, next mm. week, as or yes. next, next episode, mm. we're going to hear a conversation between a, a new couple. They are respectively aged 86 and 88. I cannot wait. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're it, fully in love, fully in love. It's oh. been a few months and they were, I interviewed them together and they were just charming. I am dying. I am so excited. I'm so excited. Well, we'll look forward to that next time. Mm-hmm. 
All right, Shelly. Well, thank you again. Always wonderful. I always feel good after talking to you. It was my pleasure, my friend. This is <laughs> awesome. And I look forward to the next one. It's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much to my guest, sex educator and author, Emily Nagoski. You can find out more about her work at emilynagoski.com. That's N-A-G-O-S-K-I. You can also find her latest project, The Feminist Survival Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks, as always, to my friend and co-conspirator, Shelley Morgan. This has been Late Bloom in Love with me, your host, Amanda Klang. Thanks so much for joining me here. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Meanwhile, you can find out more about the show and catch up on past episodes at latebloominlove.com. That's Bloomin, B-L-O-O-M-I-N. You can also leave comments or questions there. We'd love to hear from you. And be sure to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, Late Bloom in Love. Catch you next time.